Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, this is a part of a series on motivation. Motivation may be one of the biggest questions I get asked about. How do I motivate my team? Usually the first question and followed by the second. Oh, by the way, how do I motivate myself as well? Particularly as complexity has increased, time pressure is enormous, people are feeling hassled, all of those sorts of things, motivation seems to be front and center. But what I know, both from the research and from my own experience, is that motivation is a really complicated subject with a bunch of different facets. And I might add a good degree of disagreement in the scientific research. So the focus of this episode, though, is one piece of motivation, and that has to do with incentives. So we want to talk about what the research says first in terms as incentives, in terms of motivating and driving change in particular, because that's what we care about. But then we want to look at the experience, the practice side, and say, how do you use incentives in the real world to create the kind of change or behavior that you're looking for? So what works and what doesn't work? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And my guest, I would argue today, is uniquely qualified to do this discussion with me. So Bruce Regal has over 25 years experience in leadership roles in a range of companies, Oliver Wyman, Warburg, and Deutsche Bank. And at Deutsche Bank, Bruce was the Global Chief Operating Officer of Corporate Finance and also eventually the Global COO of Human Resources. In those roles, he oversaw the transformation of systems for Deutsche Bank's workforce of over 100,000, and he served on all the significant committees where pay and incentives and rankings would have been discussed and worried about and decided and so on, like the, corp- the Investment Bank's Remuneration Committee, the UK Regional Governance Board, and the UK People Committee, where he was chair. Now, in addition to that, having been a distinguished executive in residence at the University of Chicago at the Booth School, Bruce pivoted his career and earned a master's degree in behavioral and economic science at Warburg University, and then he's gone the academic route, joining St. Mary's University as a director of the Institute for Business Law and Society, and he continues to teach both at Warwick Business School and at the universities of Alberta and Calgary. So today, Bruce is really consulting in the fields of performance management, motivation, compensation with a special interest in behavioral sciences and how those impact business performance. So Bruce, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I might add for a second time. Thank you, Wanda. It's great, great to be here with you. And it's great to be working with you again. We've been working together for a long, long time. Well, it's been a long time and a lot of fun along the way too, I might add. So cool to hear your perspective on this. Let me start though with what I always say, which is why, why do you care? Why does behavioral science matter? Why is performance and motivation and incentives? What's that passion really about for you? Well, I think we all want to do well and want to work in teams with other individuals, whether it's uh, in a charity organization or on a sports team when we're young or 
at work. We want to be part of something that succeeds and be seen to succeed individually, but also to be seen to succeed, you know, with our families, with our friends, with our coworkers. So what motivates people and what incentivizes people to do better is, I think, something that we're all naturally interested in. Okay, now, but I could argue that my route to help people succeed is let's focus on how the team gets along better. Like we could argue that, or we could argue that we look at the finances purely as a way. But you believe this whole motive, this incentive thing is a big driver. What's that philosophy about for you? Well, I think I think it started with a, a love for economics. I had, talking about motivation, I had a fantastic high school teacher. Economics was an option, and a Mr. Alfred taught, taught us about economics, and I just loved it. Uh, the whole rationality of it and science-ishness of it. Uh, and one of the basic premises of neoclassical or traditional economics is that incentives matter, that you can get people to do what you want them to do or what they should do by giving them incentives. Now, in that neoclassical world or historical traditional world of economics, we always assumed those incentives were cash, money. You know, if if I'm imagining a scene of the of people building a building or building the pyramids, and this idea that you paid people for every wheelbarrow of bricks that they brought to the building site. So if you brought 10 bricks, you got 10 times as much as if you brought one brick, and that that incentivized people to bring more bricks to the work site, to produce more, to be more efficient. And and I somewhat believe in that model. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I know that piece of research that you're citing, the one brick versus the 10 bricks. And it seems to work in the research when I'm asking people to do a fairly, shall we say, menial task that is doesn't require an awful lot of brain power. It's highly repetitive, perhaps slightly boring. Okay. But when I ask people to do a complex task, which is what most of the jobs exist today, that argument falls apart. I think that's so how do you explain that? Uh, uh, I think there's, it's very hard to connect the work that one individual does in an investment bank or a law firm or an accounting firm or an engineering firm or architecture firm with the actual outcome. It's not a function of just how many bricks are you building to, to the site. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the analogy further. The building and the success of the building that you build isn't a function of how many bricks have been brought to the site. It's all sorts of other aspects. So I think it's too difficult to connect the outcome with the production in that kind of model. Okay. Now, before we go away from that, though, I'm thinking about Adam Smith and his pin factory. And you'll remember Adam Smith, the, you know, the father of economics, talked about the pin factory and specialization and how there was something like 20-something different things that went on in the pin factory and that the best way to make the pin factory efficient was to get each person to do the same thing over and over again in an assembly line work rather than getting one person to make a pin from beginning to the end. Right. But even Adam Smith realized that even in the pin factory, 
eventually motivation would go to zero because people would get so bored out of their mind of doing just the hammering the the end of the pin to make it sharp. So, so even in the world of bringing the bricks to the building site, I think, argues against just paying people just for the number of bricks. Okay, so pay, if I'm taking a very tentative statement here, has some ways to go in terms of motivating for some period of time, but he certainly doesn't answer all that we would like to look at in terms of incentivizing people, particularly if it's incentivizing people to make a change. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So dive into the research for me. And I know you're a neoclassical thinker, and I also know you have an edge that leans in a slightly different direction. But now with your academic hat on, kind of what does behavioral science have to tell us about incentives and motivation? Well, it's behavioral science is interesting, right? Because it is empirical. It's a study of what actually happens in different contexts. So it's not very good, unfortunately, at coming up with theories like traditional economics does. So there's no one answer in behavioral science. What what behavioral scientists say is that things are context dependent. It depends on, on the context. So one thing that I think behavioral scientists, there's very consistent research on is that money does work as an incentive up to some level. And I can't remember, I need to update myself on the research. That level used to be $50,000 in the United States. And I'm sure it's higher today. But you can kind of see that $50,000 for most people in the United States as an individual income may be enough to pay the rent, to put some food on the table, to possibly having a, a week's holiday or two in the year. So you can see how that sort of a level of income that people feel they need to earn to get the basics of life. But that above that level, money just stops as a motivator. I mean, people, it doesn't mean that people don't like, we all like more money more than less money, but as an incentive to work harder or more effectively or to work more hours, it tends to stop motivating at that kind of level. That's that's one lesson from behavioral science. I think another lesson critical lesson for behavioral science is the concept of reference dependency. Yeah. Uh, neoclassical economics starts with the idea that every dollar is, is fungible with every other dollar. Two dollars has a value that's greater two times what one dollar has. There, there may be a marginal return that there, there comes a point where we will stop working because we're starting to run out of time. But the idea of a of of reference dependency isn't there. Reference dependency is the is the idea, and it comes from psychology, that we measure things relative. That we as human beings don't know what absolute light means, or absolute temperature, or we we measure things by reference to something else. So. Right. If it's hot outside and we jump into the swimming pool, the swimming pool feels cold. If it's less hot outside and we jump into the swimming pool, the swimming pool at the same temperature doesn't feel as cold because the change isn't as great. And, and that reference change idea 
comes into economics. Now, talking about temperature and light and things like that, how does that connect to money? Well, it's very simple. If you are working away at your job and you're enjoying your job and you enjoy the team and you're getting paid X amount per hour and that's enough to make you have a reasonable life and you're enjoying your work, you're relatively happy. And you will be happy until you discover that your neighbor, the guy who sits right beside you in the next booth, is getting paid 10% more than you. And now you're significantly unhappy. And that can't be explained by selfish neoclassical economics, because as I said, you were happy with before you heard that your neighbor was paid 10% more than you for the same work. Uh, but you were distinctly unhappy, particularly when you were in less than your neighbor. You may actually be unhappy happy if you earn more than your neighbor, and it's not fair either, but you're certainly unhappy if you earn less than your neighbor at work. Right, right. It's interesting that you say the reference, because I believe that's how we're wired as human beings. You reference temperature, you reference light. I'm going to give you a little trivia sideline. My PhD dissertation is showing how and under what conditions we will see white as gray and gray as white. It's all relative to what's around it. It's complete. I mean, I think everything is a relative contrast function, if you will, in the human perception system. And that's, you know, I understand exactly what you're saying, but try describing that to someone who says, I know what gray looks like and I know what white looks like, and I can always discern the difference between the two. But it's all relative to what light is beside them, what color is beside them. We could go down a deep hole. In fact, part of my dissertation was taking one shade and making a transition to the next shade so that the two sides were identical, but there was this transition that happened in between. And the two sides no longer look identical. It's It's all relative to the change that happens around it. It works with brown okay. and yellow, with blue and green, and with everything, all with all sorts of colors, <laughs> sounds, with the uh, <laughs> volume of sound. So, on. let's not go down that. We could get okay. on a rabbit hole. That's not going to help anybody because I find yeah. it fascinating enough to do a dissertation in it. All right, but let's come back to pay because I think you're right. I certainly hear this all along. People think that they're a top performer, quote unquote. They think they're paid well until they recognize that they're not paid so well. They never go back to evaluate whether they are indeed the top performer or not on the team, but they're now unhappy, okay? So pay money, we should say, not just pay, is reference dependent, provided I've gotten above some other level, okay? So that's two points from behavioral science. Is there a third? I th- the 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 third one is a little bit more controversial, and it's the idea that losses loom larger than gains, uh, which Daniel Kahneman and uh, won the Nobel Prize for that concept. So it's not just the reference dependency of how much does my neighbor earn, but it's it's the less versus more. Right. So I am if I get paid. more cash, and I'll keep coming back to cash because, as you said, incentives involve a much broader thing than just money. But if I get paid 5% more than I did last year, I am happier. But if I get paid 5% less than I did last year, I am more unhappy 
from that change than I was happy from the 5% plus side. Yeah. Or looking at it another way, if you go, uh, if you lose $20 that you know that you had in your wallet and it drops out, you are more unhappy by the loss of that $20 than you are happy by finding $20 in those jeans you haven't worn for a couple of weeks. Now, th- those are hard things to compare because one's a gain and one's a loss. But but you can do all sorts of experiments and plenty of research experiments shows that we really hate a loss. Uh, this is important for pay and incentives. It's also really important when it comes to risk taking. The, the result of that is that we are actually very prone to avoid risk beyond what is rational because we're so scared of you know, we're so scared of investing money in the stock market because our parents told us that Grand Uncle Jim lost everything in the 1920s crash. And that just sits saliently in our mind, even though in most years in the United States stock markets, most people make a pretty good return. But that fear of a loss drives us to be risk averse in so many decisions we make in our lives. And I, I, I think that that's a sort of second level, more difficult concept to understand, but certainly something that behavioral science spends a lot of time talking about. Well, this time of year, when most of the managers and leaders I'm spending any time with are worried about how they have those year-end conversations and what the bonus and incentives and pay structure is going to look like for next year, and you know they come out with the messages that everybody is down. So they're trying to do the reference Absolutely. thing, but they're not tackling the fact that there's a loss. The, the fact that you're down, even if it's totally rational doesn't uh, overcome that sense of I lost something that was valuable to me. Even if it's just a tiny bit, I lost something. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I, I'm going to tell, uh, if we have time, I'm going to oh, tell please. a quick story about this. Gary Becker, who's one of the most famous neoclassical economists from the University of Chicago, a labor economist. I got to meet with him when I was at Deutsche Bank taught building our incentive program. And he told me a story about how he used to run the economics department at the University of Chicago and that they had a small bonus pool. And this is the most rational econ concentrated group of mostly or predominantly men, possibly in the world. And he explained that he often, if he had a bonus pool or he could do variable pay, he never paid people zero. He never gave people a 0% bonus. If the bonus, if he had, you know, $100,000 to spread around amongst 20 people, he would make sure that even the worst performer got a little bonus because paying somebody zero or taking money away from them was so painful to them that it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it for his own ease of life, and it wasn't worth it for the motivation of the people of concern. So even him, the most rational of economists, realizes that taking something away from people really, really does hurt. And it, I want to emphasize, it doesn't matter how small it is. No, no. I mean, literally, it, it, it the, the, the first dollar taken away hurts the most. <laughs> There's diminishing returns on the negative side the same way that there is on the positive side. 
So that would mean if I'm going to cut your uh, pay, I better cut it by a whole lot. <laughs> yes. Well, if you think about it, think about how, uh, and there's been a lot of research on this, how firms declare their accounting numbers. So at the end of every financial year, firms declare whether they've made a gain or a loss. Well, it turns out there's it's not normally distributed, to use the academic language. Lots of firms make lots of money and lots of firms make a little bit of money. No firms just make zero or a small loss. The minute you move into lost, if a firm has lost money for the year, they'll spend a lot of time with their accountants trying to massage the numbers to make a gain. And if they fail, then they'll declare a huge loss, right? So you don't see big companies announcing a million-dollar loss. They'll either announce a $300 million loss or they'll announce that they've broken even. And, and that's reference dependency and losses looming larger than games. If, if you're going to... If you're gonna take, if you're gonna take a bath, you might as well take a big bath, and then the future's up. Or a new leader, a new leader gets into into power, and what's the first thing they do? Say that all the numbers that the old leader was depending on were wrong. The deficit was much larger, right? So that you're right. changing the reference point, moving the last guy into the lost territory, so you can move into gain territory. Right. This has, um, I'm going to move out of incentives territory for a moment to talk about something else that's been looming in everybody's minds. And that's the whole, how many days in the office are we going to say, you know, because coming out of COVID, there was a lot of freedom. Did you want to work in the office or not walk in the work in the office? And then companies have gradually moved the needle on that, in effect, taking away choice. And it's the removal of choice that feels like a loss. And so based on what you're saying, before I had the choice, I don't have the choice today, reference dependent. That company gives me one set of choice. You give me another set of choice, reference dependency. And I lost something that's important to me. And you can see yes. the backlash for exactly those two principles. Yes. Yes, I think the the... You know, nobody was clamoring before COVID to say, I want, to, well, that's not true. There were, people were arguing for spending time at home, but it was more from a logistics point of view. People who had young families said, I need to be at home to pick up my children or things like that. So there, there was a reason for it. It wasn't, it was an efficiency awesome. argument, yeah. but then we all worked from home and suddenly we kind of liked that in some cases uh, and kind of liked the fact we didn't have to pay for transportation for instance, and then you take that away from someone, that's right, it's, it's seen as a loss. Uh, and therefore, uh, something has been taken away. I mean, the, 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 the political example of this uh, is in the Brexit debate, whichever side of the Brexit debate people were on, there seems to be quite a consensus that the wording of the referendum made a big deal. So, the wording of the, the the question that was asked of the British people was, do you want to leave the European Union? That was the general question. But it was framed by the advertisers as, do you want to take back control from the European Union? And it's that word back that was put in that is the reference dependency and the loss aversion idea. Whether people thought they'd lost something or not, the spin doctors told us 
that we had lost control. It had been taken away from us. And now it was take back that control. So if, you know, and the referendum only won by one or 2%, there's some evidence that if the question had been, would you like to take control rather than take back control, it would have been a different result. Right. That's an interesting one. You see that playing out in the U.S. in the political system, but I will not discuss that point. We're going to leave it there okay? because I want to come back to this notion that when you are trying to get people to do something, to change a behavior, to put increased performance or efficiency or motivation or any of those versions of things in place, there are two components that are really critical. One is recognizing that... Um, it's all reference to what somebody else had or what I had before and avoid the loss. Because when you put it in language of loss, you're going to get one reaction. When we put it in a language of gain, you're going to get a completely different reaction, as you just rightly said. And I think that has powerful implications for managers and leaders today as they think about how they try to entice employees to do something different. Yes. All right. I want to pivot to a concept, Bruce, maybe a little bit unfair, but I'd like to get your reaction to that. One of the things that has been described about the younger generations at work today is that their um, metric is less about money and more about time. And that they're much more focused on how they gain time to do a variety of things in their lives because time is seen as the precious commodity. And they will trade time for money, but it has to be a lot of money to make up for time. Are you seeing, I mean, does that make sense to you? Is there anything from the science that would say that's a consistent idea? And is that also the same with the reference dependent and the losses loom large? I th- I, that's a difficult question. I, I th- first of all, it's it, that's that concept is part of traditional economics and always has been. You know, the concept of opportunity cost, you know, mm-hmm. I will only work to the to the number of hours where the leisure time that I can trade for that opportunity cost changes. I mean, there was a famous uh, I think it's Richard Thaler talks about the famous experiment with with taxi drivers in New York City. And they discovered that when they paid taxi drivers more uh, per trip the concept was we'll pay the taxi drivers more so that we'll have more supply of taxi drivers on the street. And they paid more and discovered that taxi drivers were less willing to spend hours on the street because suddenly the opportunity cost of their leisure time had gone up. They could spend the money that they'd earned in the, on, on the hours. So, so their goal wasn't to maximize their earnings. Their goal was to earn a hundred dollars in a week. And once they'd earned the hundred dollars, then they went and spent their time doing their leisure, their leisure. And if they could earn that hundred dollars in three and a half days instead of four days, because the rate went up, that that's what they'd do. Right. Uh, so I, th- I think there's always been this concept. I think I don't want to make generalizations about young people because, in part, as an empiricist behavioral scientist, I'd prefer to look at the actual data. There certainly is a feeling that young people are less willing to do that trade-off. Uh, if, if in fact that's true, there could be a lot of reasons for that. One reason could be that the world is a more precarious place. Right. We don't know if in, 
in 20 years, 50 years, we're going to have the ability to go hiking in the mountains and see animals because maybe we're destroying the environment. So better go do that now because there won't be a chance in the future. That could be one. I think there's also a tendency in this reference dependency to look at what our parents earned. Mm-hmm. So if if I'm thinking about my own motivation, I grew up in a a, a mid-sized city in Canada. My father was a, a surgeon and he had a certain standard of living. And I looked at his standard of living and I thought to myself, whatever field I go into, economics or the law, whatever, if I work hard and I'm lucky, I will be able to attain his standard of living. Uh, and I was able to do that by working hard and by being lucky, I would argue. Uh, I'm not sure that the next generation looks at us in the same way as we looked at our parents. So if you're sitting in London, England, and you have parents who live in a wealthy part of town, you might say to yourself, it doesn't matter how hard I work, I'm never going to achieve what my parents have achieved. And there's a lot of data around this. You hear this in the press all the time, that this is the first generation since the Second World War that's going to earn less money and have less real earnings power, not just nominal money, but real earnings power than their parents. And maybe in that state of loss, you say, well, I'm not going to achieve what my parents achieved. At least I'm going to go out and have a good time with my friends or or do something else that gives me value, like working for a charity or making the world a better place or spending more time with my friends. Yeah. Yeah. So we start to look at different kind of incentives, which is a perfect pivot point, rather than just the pure money with the yes. belief that do more money. And that brings us to the concept I want to do, which is I want to talk about incentives beyond just money. All right. And I also I want to pivot now to go from the research and talk about your experience trying to get people to change to or to do something you wanted them to do inside a large institution with a very complex compensation system and incentive system. And I want to know what have you seen? What works? What doesn't work? Well, the I think you come back to these basic concepts of reference dependency again, and also this idea that money only motivates above a certain level. So the big eureka thing for me was that we developed an incentive plan system at Deutsche Bank for Corporate Finance that was based on all sorts of measurements of performance, individual performance, team performance, contribution to franchise. We basically said, Well, first of all, we started with a goal. We said we want to be one of the top five investment banks in the world. And to do that, we need to do the following things. And one of those things was teamwork and promote teamwork across border, get people to be working together, get people to increase the size of the fee pie, et cetera. Uh, And we measured all these things, and we, we were quite scientific. We had 10 different measurements. They were mathematical they weren't all about compensate about revenues. Some of them were about contribution to recruiting and training, contribution to helping people across borders without being asked, uh, 
contribution to avoiding risks and 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 working with the compliance teams. So there was a whole bunch of different measures. But but the really exciting thing was that I discovered there was more interest in where people were ranked than what they were paid. So basically, my, my boss wanted me and my colleagues to develop a system where you just put in a lot of data and a number popped out, the pay number. The problem with that is that it's too complicated to figure out profitability per person. As you said at the beginning, we're not working in jobs like bringing bricks to the pyramids or to the buildings. So is your contribution worth, if you're the best contributor, is that contribution worth $10 million or $10,000 or or something in between? Who knows? Because to to figure that out, we'd have to figure out a profitability measure for each single individual, which is impossible and too complicated. What matters is the ranking is... And and so what we did is we put people into we this sounds terrible but we we measured performance in deciles so are you in the first decile the second decile the third decile and then we took the bonus pool and paid the people in the first decile the most and then the second decile etc down to the tenth decile we paid the least where again we also even if they were the worst performers we tried to pay them a positive bonus or we ask them to leave, but there's no use, right? If someone's bad, badly performing, there's no use paying them nothing and have them continue to be badly motivated the following year. <laughs> you might as well ask them to leave, and then right. maybe they can go somewhere else and where they where they feel more wanted and feel more part of the team. Uh, but but what really amazed me was this idea that people cared about their ranking. And there was one eureka moment where a very senior person who I'd worked with for a long time, in fact, he'd been senior to me at Warburg's, and then he'd come to Deutsche. So I had a huge amount of respect for him. I liked him. I'd I'd worked with him on difficult deals. He taught me a lot. And he came in one day and said, Bruce, how do I got involved with graduate recruiting? And I said, I'll use the name Ralph. That's not his real name. I said, Ralph, why do you want to get involved in graduate recruiting? You're not going to get paid anymore if you get involved. You're you're at a stage of your career where you're sort of on a flat, you know, you're a vice chairman kind of position where we're going to pay you an amount and let you come into the office as a senior advisor. And he said, but Bruce, you're doing this report card for me every year and I'm getting a C on recruiting because I don't do any recruiting. Now, this man was, I think he was probably 60 years old. And he said, I never got, I didn't like getting C's in school. I wanted to get A's. And now you're telling me I'm getting a C for recruiting. I don't want to get a C for recruiting. I want to get an A for recruiting. And it didn't matter that he wasn't going to get paid more for it. He wanted to feel that he was part of the team and me and maybe my boss, more importantly, who we reported to, saw him as an A player across all areas of his work. Uh, and I, good news, I explained to him how to get involved in recruiting. And in his own way, he made a strong contribution to recruiting young people, which was an important goal for us. So it was, this was, this isn't just theoretical, you know, 
We wanted the Ralphs of the world to get involved in going to campuses and spending their time recruiting the next generation of bankers. So it succeeded without paying them a penny more. Okay. That's, I love that notion that you started at the beginning, that what motivates you about behavioral science and performance and so on is that all of us want to be part of a winning team and we want to contribute more, our fair share, and feel like we are doing a good job. I should say most of us, there are a few exceptions to that one. Yes. So, and there you go. Like, I'm getting a C. I don't want to get a C. I want to get an A. How do I do it? Okay, back up. You slid something into that story. I happen to know a few more details about it that I want you to back up from. Why did you decide that this team, team interaction, team across borders, was really going to help put you in the top five? And then I want to know how you measure it. You said you had uh, 10 okay. measures, but whoa, yeah. wait a minute. That's interesting. Yeah. So, look, there's different types of work. There's no question that in a corporate finance environment that winning an IPO, an initial public offering, or or a mergers and acquisition transaction, uh, first of all, winning the deal pays a huge amount. Coming in second pays almost nothing, or in some cases, nothing. You 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 either advise the company on the takeover or you don't advise the company on the takeover. So, so, so the, the cost of losing is huge and the benefit of winning is, is huge. And actually, we went and did some work on this. My boss said to me, let's find out how we won the IPO of a certain mining company. And I've got the mining company in, in line. And I went and did some work on it and talked to people and said, and talked to people at the firm who'd given given us the business and and talked to people within our firm. And I discovered that it was an enormous amount of work over a long period of time. The bankers involved, the the company involved had relations from with Morgan Grenfell going back decades. Uh, There were friendships involved. There was trust involved. Deutsche Bank had been, Morgan Grenfell, sorry, had been one of the firms that was involved in 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 determining gold prices in London. The, the city of London used to determine gold prices once a day, and Morgan Grenfell was one of the group that was in that. That was important. So there was no, it's, it's not really a star system. And, and I think this is true of most endeavors of humankind. It's not true that there's one person who is, determines the winning and the losing. You know, and I, you know, I'm sure uh, I've been taught not to spend too much time using sports analogies, but y- you can see there's very few team sports, regardless of how good the the the, the quarterback is or the or the striker in soccer. It's the team that matters, and how the team works together as a team, and how the management works, and the and the physiotherapist, etc. So it it can't be. That we should pay everything to the to the the rain the so-called rainmaker because it turns out there aren't really, at least it we discovered in corporate finance there aren't really rainmakers who determine the winner or the loser. Some sometimes there might be, but nine tenths of the time, or I I don't I don't want to give a statistic. It's yeah. a team sport, so you need people to work together. Okay. 
All right. And I think there are any number of firms, especially today, who are looking at these big mandates, whatever that mandate may be about, whether it's a client engagement or a deal or a financial or an advising role or whatever. And you find that, yes, there may be a, quote, rainmaker who's leading the charge, but the one-to-one is never enough to really carry the day. I think there's many, many more touch points that would happen. So you come to the conclusion, I'm assuming, that if you played more like a team, then you would win more deals. Yes. Okay. And I have a lot of feeling a lot of firms today especially would say, oh, yes, us too. All right. So yeah. then how do you know if somebody's playing well on the team? Like how do okay. you begin to get there? Well, I'm going to give you the the eureka interesting answer that we came up with. But first, back up to what you're talking about young people today. There's something about working in an atmosphere that's team-oriented also that's just much more pleasurable and much more likely to keep you staying at work. You know, I I miss Deutsche Bank. I, I miss working at a, at a bank in an exciting environment with lots of other people. And I don't just miss the bankers. I miss the security people and the people I got to know in the in the kitchen, you know, it. There's a familiar, you like working with people and you, and if you're happier, I think you're more motivated, you're more likely to stay, you're more likely to win. So it goes beyond even just the, 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 the elite team on the sports field. It's the whole franchise that matters. Uh, so how do you measure this? <laughs> so, and, and this comes to a concept that, I've strongly come to believe, which is true, and 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 you know it because you're in the psycho in the in your psychology background in the sciences and and, and your own dissertations. The the problem with economics is that people think if you can't explain ninety five percent of something, it's not worth explaining it, and that you need a perfect measure, you know. But actually, you can make measurements that are pretty good. And they'll do. And if you take a bunch of measurements that are pretty good and you average them out, you get very good measurements. <laughs> so 10 imprecise measurements, and if you think about a medical scientist or somebody, 10 imprecise measurements can come with a very accurate measurement about whether someone's going to get heart disease or have a stroke, etc. So we quickly moved away, and this was very controversial, particularly with the the real sort of financial engineers who were so good at figuring out highly complicated hedging models that were extremely accurate. We came up with some far less accurate models. So here, here's the question we asked, and I love this one. We asked all the senior bankers who helped them in their endeavors for the year. So we gave, I'll be precise, we told all managing directors and directors that they had 10 votes. And they had they could they could choose to give away zero votes or they could choose to vote. And the te- and they they and the 10 votes they had to vote for people outside their region. Why outside their region? Because it was cross region that we were trying to incentivize wasn't within the United States. We wanted Americans talking to Europeans, talking to Asians and working together. And then the other thing we said is they couldn't be in their same team. 
So if they were in equity capital markets, they couldn't pick people in equity capital markets in another country. And why was that? To just avoid game playing. You know, that the boss would come out and say, okay, we have this new incentive thing. You're not allowed to vote for people of the other party kind of thing. Uh, And we, so if you imagine we had about 400 managing directors and directors, that's 4,000 votes. Uh, Most people voted, which is interesting, right? In a neo, you know, why vote? It's not helping you. It's only helping other people get paid more. And maybe you could argue, I'm not going to vote because that'll increase my chances of getting paid more. Most people vote because most people care about their colleagues and, and, and want to participate. And we ranked these people, people's votes. And uh, my boss, Michael and I, sort of got in a room at one point and he I won't use the exact wording for public broadcast but he said you know we wanted a measurement system that told us who the stars were in terms of culture building and who the blanks were in terms of culture building and you've just come up with a model that works you know he looked at the names and said yes the people in the do- top decile, we know that these are the culture builders. These are the people who help each other across borders and things. Uh, and now you've figured out a way of measuring it. Is it accurate to the uh, the decimal place? Absolutely not. But is are the people in the top decile significantly better than the people in the fourth or fifth decile? Yes. Uh, so, and, and, and that works because it, it's sort of a, a virtuous circle. Not only are we measuring it somewhat accurately, we're also telling people that we're measuring it, which makes them want to do stuff. Now, an an interesting aside on this is a lot of people would come to me and say, what do you mean helped me? Define what you mean by helped me. And we refused to define it. We said, it could be helping you with a travel plan. It could be helping you with a client. It could be helping you with a family problem. We didn't say that, but we didn't define what we meant by helping people. It was just building relationships across the firm, across countries. And and it worked. And did you then find evidence that you were indeed increasing as a result of this people's cross-border interactions? I mean, did it drive the change you were looking for? Well, we did. That's, we did look at, first of all, we did move up the league tables in the 10 years that we, and we did this for 10 years. And this is really important. I think you can't do this for one year or two years or three years. And, and we haven't talked that much about trust yet, but you have to trust that the management team is going to be in force for a long period of time. And that, that this is going to going to work for a long period of time. But we did look at regressions of how much of our revenues were coming from cross-border, and they did go up. Our rankings did go up. We also discovered things that, like, I mean, one of the things that we measured was how often do you see your clients? This is a – so how often do you do call reports and, and put reports in about – meeting clients. And a lot of bankers would say, that's just a waste of time putting in a call report. But it turned out, and I don't think you'll be surprised to hear this, although we were a bit surprised, it turned out 
the more touch points you have with your clients, the more chances you have of winning deals from them. And we proved that using regressions ex post, that, okay. that, that companies that had more call reports ended up having more revenues. So, and I'm not sure we tested whether the bankers who, there was certainly a correlation, this is interesting, a very strong correlation between the bankers who produced more income and the bankers who were more helpful to people cross-border. Ah. So you could think, right, you could think, you could argue that the other way around, that you could think that bankers who are more selfish and don't care about the other people will earn more in their regions. But in fact, there was a positive correlation between revenues produced and and being a good team player. So, and and we did look at these correlations and regressions and we publicized them. Now, you know, some people were naysayers. Some people said, well, your R squareds are very low and it doesn't matter that much, you know, okay. but as a good social scientist, if the R squares are significant, if, if it's beyond the prob- the 1% probability levels, then that's a real correlation. And, and there, you can, you could argue causation there. Okay. So if I come back to this to try to make a summary here, it's figuring out a reasonable measure. I might yes. argue a valid measure. Okay. Yes. So the top percent and the bottom percent to actually measure what you're looking for, the fourth to fifth place, maybe not that critical, but that's what you were looking for. Yes. The behavior that you're trying to drive does indeed drive the outcomes you're looking for for the company and for the business. So it was a good measure to try to get people changed on. And it wasn't the pay necessarily as much as it was the ranking. How am I doing relative to my peers? And we're back to that reference um, thing that we started at at the beginning. And also these are people who are incredibly well paid to begin with. So the money in and of itself is probably not the total incentive structure. Yes. Okay. Now, there's a piece you left dangling in there, which is trust. You want to have a couple of words about trust? Because you said you can't do it in one year. This is repeated over time. Well, it gets back to, you know, there is a lot of research around this about what really motivates people. And I, I can't quote the specific research, but there does seem to be a general consensus amongst a lot of behavioral scientists that, that trust in the workplace or outside the workplace is the number one motivator that you, that working with people you trust gets you to do what you, what you want to do. And and you can think of, you know, trust in government is important to working in society, trust in a tax system, trust, trust in, and, and, I think that's what it comes down to. And you see a lot of companies, uh, we can talk about uh, sustainability and the environment, a lot of companies who say one thing and then do other things. And I think one thing, you, you, you can't say that something's important and then not measure it and not incentivize it and not have it as part of your compensation system. So if, if compliance, what we compliance was important to us and we made compliance part of our system, uh, risk taking wasn't that much of it. And we never figured out a way to figure out what risk taking was. And then 
people took too much risk. People used the capital of the bank too much, and we lost money in the credit crisis because people, our colleagues used capital because we weren't measuring it. So tr trust in management, trust in each other uh, mm -hmm. is critically important. And again, I'll, I'll use this, you know, well, I, we, we're running out of time, the, the trust analogy in sports. You know, if we like our fellow players, if we like our manager, we don't have to actually my boss used to say you don't have to like them. You just have to respect them and trust them, right. trust the team. And I think that's a and, and that's maybe coming back to what you were talking about. Young people, young people today don't want to work in firms that yeah. the opportunity cost is too great and, and the pay is not as high as it used to be. And they don't want to work in firms that aren't consistent with their beliefs and, and values. Right. Absolutely. The, well, you certainly see this component that I need to trust my manager and I need to trust not just my direct manager, but that management chain above me because you know your manager isn't the only one driving this depending on where you sit in the organization. That's right. And that trust is way beyond whether you say one thing and do something else. That's a certainly component of it. That would be the reliability component. But there's a, you know, are you looking out for me? And are you going to have my best interest in heart? And can I count on what you say to me? You actually really mean, or did you just leave out half of it that you should have said? I mean, there's a, so many components in there, including how much I, how similar I am to you. Mm -hmm. So that's a conversation for another day. But I think yes. you're, I think you're right to say. That in all of this science and all this empirical and observation, there are still some difficult ones that are hard to get your hands on, hard to measure, that we know are big drivers for motivation. Okay. I agree. All right, Bruce. If I summarize all of this, I think my three points are the three points you started with. One, that money isn't effective as a motivator past a particular point, and particularly when we're talking about complex work, not moving bricks, that what counts as good incentive is completely reference-dependent, reference-dependent on what I had before, reference-dependent on what somebody else is doing, reference-dependent on how I rank. We can look at any number of things that that reference point is important for. That's how we judge if it's good or not good, and that if you take something away, that has far greater impact on happiness than if you give something. So you've got yes. to avoid taking stuff away. I think is a really interesting piece. Yes. Whether that is money or a bonus or uh, a ranking or an hours from home or a choice to decide. I think we can look all across all of those. I think what's fascinating, though, about your story is this notion of take what it is you're looking to get people to do, find an approximate measure of that, and measure it, validate it, and then consistently apply it and use the ranking principle, that reference-dependent principle, to get people to do what you're looking to, for them to do, which is not okay. necessarily about pay. Bruce, we could keep talking. It's been a pleasure going, talking with you today, so thank you. Thank you very much, Wada. It's been a great pleasure. All right. My guest today is Bruce Regal. He's now as a consultant working in behavioral sciences on performance incentives and motivations. Bruce, how can people reach you if they want to be in touch? I think through LinkedIn. Okay. It's probably the best. And uh, it's Bruce Regal. And the last name is R-I-G-A-L. And I think there's only one of us. So you'll <laughs> find me. 
<laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate the conversation. If you've liked today's podcast, please rate us in your podcast provider and definitely join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Thank you.